1: Hello, and welcome to Western Civ. In this last supplemental episode, we will examine the Roman practice of building towns and then take a tour of the empire. The Romans left us many legacies, but perhaps one of their greatest was the Roman urbanization influence, particularly on parts of Western Europe, where such was previously completely unknown. From the very beginning, The Romans were involved in town and city building as a matter of policy. As early as the 4th century BC, the Romans were creating new towns and cities throughout Italy for various resettlement and security purposes. Building towns was also a serious religious matter for the Romans. A ritual furrow would be plowed alongside the pomerarium, or sacred boundary of the town. Of course, there would be other, primarily agricultural, ceremonies performed at the same time, linking the new urban area to the land that surrounded it. The Romans laid out their new settlements in a grid-like pattern they borrowed from their Greek and Etruscan neighbors. There were two main streets, one running north to south, the Cardo Maximus, another running east to west, the Decumanus Maximus which intersected in the very center of the town. Interestingly, by the first and second centuries BC, the Romans were founding citizen colonies, which served domestic political goals rather than military purposes. Think back to the Gracchi on that. Think of how much that they would have wanted those type of settlements to foster instead of military ones. Now, the first consideration when choosing the location for a new colony was the surrounding area, of course. Often this meant more strategic considerations than agricultural or economic ones. Many times these new colonies had to be able to communicate with other nearby cities and towns, perhaps even Rome itself, so roads were constructed at the same time. As the Romans spread increasingly far from their home into North Africa, Spain for example, their colonies became more and more isolated, yet they remained proud bastions of culture which would serve slowly but surely to attract more locals to the Roman fold. Now these colonies were generally administered by a local council and a magistrate on the ideals of early republican Rome. Once the town with its grid pattern was set the colonists would have to divide up the available farming land. The process for surveying for this purpose was called centuriation Essentially, a tool called a groma would be used to find a cross point between several plots of land, this tool itself being little more than a wooden cross. That would determine the intersecting point for four plots, which were rectangular in shape. These rectangular shapes would be measured out and at the end the groma would be laid down again and the process repeated, so on and so forth. The plots, finally, were then assigned to individual colonists. Most colonists would live in individual farmhouses on their plots of land, but they would always look to the town as a place of potentially refuge and certainly the focus of commercial and cultural life. Some portion of the population did live within the town itself, but those were generally the people with trade skills, blacksmiths, carpenters, and of course shopkeepers. Generally, one of the most important functions served by these towns and cities established by Rome were market days. Given that most of the people living in the area lived spread out over a wide area on their respective farms, the ability to come to a central town for social and economic purposes would have been a major event. It would have been an opportunity for farmers to sell their goods and also for religious and other cultural purposes we have to keep in mind that at this stage in history the vast majority of population lived on and worked the land itself thus going to town would not have been an everyday occurrence this would have been a special moment and something that the romans would have looked forward to and something that allowed them to foster the communications through this urban environment now another purpose served by towns was purely militaristic an army legion pitching a permanent or semi-permanent camp would in many ways resemble a town very closely. The streets were orderly and laid out in the same fashion. There were barracks, chapels, parade grounds, and defensive walls. In fact, the Romans may have copied from the military camps to their colonies and not vice versa when it came to urban planning. For example, the original plans for Ostia, In the 4th century BC, which was Rome's port city, is a clear example of a town mirroring the rectangular shape and streamlined layout of a military camp. While certainly military camps could be self-sustaining, as they often had to be, they no doubt interacted with nearby towns as both providers, for example making bricks, working public construction, and providing police services, and also as consumers, purchasing foods and merchandise, using lodging when needing, and attending various events and establishments for entertainment. These military towns served a critical, affirmative purpose, as well as purely defensive military ones. They carried the message of Rome from the farthest reaches of the empire. Agricola, one famous governor of Britain, certainly built castles and stockades for defense. But he also built law courts, baths, and paid for chieftain's sons to have a Latin education. The result, wrote the historian Tacitus, was that little by little, these men, these natives, these locals, they incline towards the decadent frills of empire. And while they call it civilization, quote, in fact, it was part of their enslavement. Once subdued by the Romans, the tribes of Italy were organized into what were called prefectora, which were large judicial districts, served by prefects, who acted as a sort of circuit judge, though generally only visiting the largest town in the district. These men would generally only deal with the larger issues facing the districts, while day-to-day administration was left to the locals. These larger districts were organized into more urban communities after the Social War in 90 BC, when Roman citizenship was granted to all the allied communities of Italy. Now, at the end of the Republic and beginning of the Principate, the Romans began encountering a wide range of new settlement patterns, from familiar urban areas of the Greek East, to the tribal structures of Gaul, and all the way down to the scattered Berber nomads of North Africa. Thus, towns had to serve a variety of different functions depending on their geographic location. The Romans used their towns in Gaul to encourage an urban lifestyle. Many localities in Gaul early on boasted a bathhouse and amphitheater, even though they had no permanent population whatsoever. Slowly but surely, nonetheless, the tribesmen began to come down from their hill forts and settle in the plains near the urban centers. These urban centers and the Roman roads were often the major ways Rome encouraged urbanization, which, particularly in Gaul, was quite successful. Interestingly, the traffic on the road attracted farmers, who would sell their goods to passerbys, and often these roadside shanties would develop into small towns of their own. Sources from the Times report that there were towns about every 7 to 12 miles, These villages were spaced so because they would often serve as relay stations for the cursus publicus, which was the message or mail system of the Roman Empire. Further spaced out were the mansiones, which were spaced at two days' journey by wagon. Neither had a discernible civic structure and were administered by a local businessman who would lease the concession stands from the local authorities that ran the postal service. These were relatively small establishments, which might include an inn, stables for horses, or perhaps a barracks, and for even larger areas, a defensive tower to be used in time of emergency by the local population. Now, as long as we're talking about inns, why don't we take a little trip of our own right now? We have heard in fairly good detail over the last two episodes about the city of Rome, but Rome itself was only a tiny fraction of the empire that stretched from Great Britain all the way to Mesopotamia. And the coming of the Roman Empire changed many of these areas in very ways, and very strikingly different ways. Many historians have argued that the coming of Rome helped Western civilization develop. Certainly hearkening back to the old Monty Python life of Brian sketch, we cannot ignore that the Romans brought roads, aqueducts, literacy, and sanitation, and of course, safety. Well, safety once you were in the empire, that is. Don't forget all the Gauls who had to die for Gaul to be pacified. Do not forget that Spain was a virtual wasteland after playing host to several Roman civil wars. I do not think we can measure the progress of human civilization against the loss of human life unless we really had some connection to that loss. Otherwise, all we have are numbers, and numbers are easy to play with. Those who we know and we love, well, that's a whole different story, isn't it? So now, as we tour the empire, we need to remember that the Roman Empire brought many things to the peoples of Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. But it came with a cost, a severe one. We will start our tour in Italy. It seems odd to me to think of Rome and Italy as different entities, but the Romans would have. Even though Italians had long had citizenship and many other paltry distinctions had ceased to exist, there remained no doubt that many Romans and Italians saw themselves as culturally distinct. For example, we know that for centuries after Roman domination, various cities throughout Italy continued practicing and administering their own laws. Now there was an upper limit to this practice, but it's nonetheless fascinating to think that you could travel perhaps only 100 miles from Rome and be subject to a different kind of legal code, depending upon the severity of the dispute and who was involved, of course. Particularly in the south, near Campania and Tarentum, modern day Taranto located roughly in the sole of the Italian boot. Greek culture continued to dominate, which makes sense, as this area was originally home to little but Greek colonies. Now Italy remained a rich place, after all. It was for now immune from direct taxation. Nonetheless, the economy of the peninsula as a whole would gradually decline throughout the Julio-Claudian period we are now entering why it declined is harder to document. Some argue that the wars of conquest ended during this period until the influx of super-cheap slave labor dried up, making the latifundia, those large estates, much less profitable. Yet slavery remained a huge part of the Roman economy despite the decline in product, so the argument holds less sway for me. What makes much more sense is the realization that we are now living in a world that there is very little difference between a Roman living in the Po Valley, for example, and one living in modern-day Provence. In other words, the competition was now so much greater that it simply makes sense that Italy's dominance would begin to decline. Italy did remain an important economic player, mostly because it would always have the most consistent customer in the empire. Rome. As long as the empire's metropolis kept humming, there would be no shortage of wine drinkers or other consumers for the Italian countryside. Interestingly to me, Italy throughout the Julio-Claudian period continued to be the primary source of recruits for the army. I say interestingly because, as we've just mentioned, there were many less wars of conquest now so why would you sign up if you're not going to get some lavish triumph or tons of booty? Well, we'll talk about that in the next few episodes. That being said, the trend reversed itself dramatically by the 2nd century AD. By that time, legionnaires from Italy were actually rare, as the found way more luck in Gaul and the Balkans, as we'll discuss. So from Italy, we now set sail for the island of Sicily, which Romans certainly considered distinct from Italy at this point in history. Sicily, during the late Republic and early Principate, was treated, simply put, as an ATM machine. A source of profit, nothing less, nothing more. You may recall from our episode on the wars with Sextus Pompeius that Sicily bore the brunt of Octavian's efforts to remove his rival in the West. It took some time, but by 21 BC, the memories and scars of those civil conflicts were healed and gone. The province was evidently not considered dangerous since Augustus allowed a senator to govern it. Sicily was treated like an extension of Italy in some regards, as senators could travel there without having to request permission. Now, by the early Principate, Sicily was heavily Romanized, and the Greek culture that had flourished there previously had begun to fade into the background. Latin was used much more often for inscriptions. Roman coinage was the exclusive means of trade. And as the cities recovered, the hilltop communities of the interior slowly but surely dried up. Evidently, there was no need for protection any longer. Now those trade routes were open. Sicilian grain could flow back to the capital. Indeed, for the next several hundred years, things would be good in Sicily. So let us move on now from this peaceful island to the Iberian Peninsula and see what changes Rome has wrought there. Today, the Iberian Peninsula consists of three countries, Spain, Portugal, and Andorra, though if I was talking to a Basque, they would surely quarrel with me over being left out. The Iberian Peninsula, however, in the imperial age remained ethnically, socially, and politically diverse, and each different group of people had a very different attitude towards the Roman state. For example, in the Pyrenees, the local tribes remained fairly independent until conquered by Augustus in the last years before the Common Era. This is the region of the Basque people who remained fiercely independent, even to this day, though they are politically, of course, a part of Spain. Now the story was very different to the south and east. Here the population was a mix of Iberians and Celts. Here the people were much more positively disposed towards the Roman state and its culture Aiding in this fact was Augustus' decision to populate many cities along the eastern coast of the peninsula with veteran troops during his reign, a decision which no doubt contributed to the stability of the region, a region which would, by the way, remain perfectly stable until an invasion by the Moors around 171 AD. Many towns in this region received Ius Lati, or Latin rites, and this region would ultimately provide Rome with several of its greatest emperors that we'll be getting into in the next several months. Many Spanish aristocrats would foster deep relationships with Rome, though they would never lose contact with their hometowns. Romanization, as we term it, here was pervasive, but it was not absolute. Some Celtic art remained through this period, particularly in central Spain. Latin would have been the exclusive use for state inscriptions except for, again, around the Pyrenees. But as one traveled west from the Mediterranean, one certainly would have noticed a major decline in the pattern of urbanization. The province of Lusitania, modern-day Portugal, was quite unchanged under the early empire. This fact likely has to do much more with the relative infertility and profitability of the land. Again who said the Romans can't be capitalists. The Romans would have seen the islands of Corsica and Sardinia as a part of Spain rather than of Italy. Sardinia was a solid grain-producing region, yet much slower to Romanize than Sicily, since it had a reputation for banditry and an unhealthy climate. Corsica, very interesting to me, was virtually ignored by Rome. Corsica is quite rugged in the interior, and to a large extent it remained untamed and free of major Roman interference, other than the Roman navy occasionally sinking its teeth into Corsica's major natural resource. Timber. Gaul, a major Roman province. Julius Caesar used it as its springboard to push the Roman world into flames. And later, a certain Hun would stop just short of doing the same thing in this region. How had Gaul changed? Before we examine the changes to Gaul, we need to remember we're not dealing with modern-day France and the Low Countries. While that might be the same geographic region as today... What we learned about the Iberian Peninsula could easily also be said about Gaul. It was very culturally divided. For example, Provence, dominated by the Greek city of Messia, modern-day Marseille, was incorporated into the Mediterranean world long before Rome came along. On the other hand, central and northern France were only brought into the now Roman world by Caesar's conquest, which were only about 60 years before where we are now in the story. Thus, it would be wrong to suspect any sort of cultural continuity. Gaul did, of course, change. When Gaul was conquered, it benefited greatly by the first century AD as it was incorporated into the Mediterranean economy. When we think of benefit today, we we assume we're talking about exporting goods for financial gain, but that's not really the case, and that's not really what I'm talking about. Gaul benefited because the elite could purchase the goods that were available heretofore only in the south. Thus, their standard of living rose dramatically, while the standing on the balance of trade remained largely unchanged. Rome divided Gaul into three provinces under Augustus, Aquitania in the west, Lugdunensis in central France, and Belka, where the Netherlands and Belgium are today. Of course. Remember that there was also further Gaul located around Marseille, but Rome saw that region as very distinct. In France, the former native chiefs took on roles like the Roman elite. Of course, they would still need to raise troops when Rome called, but now they also became magistrates of new towns, set up in imitation of Roman towns in Italy. This was different than in Britain, which has yet been unconquered by Rome in our story where local elites would still rule as client kings, even after Claudius takes the island for Rome, as we'll see in the next few episodes. Now one major change someone who traveled through central Gaul would surely notice around 1 AD that they would not have seen around 100 BC was a cultural difference. Augustus forbade all druidic practices for any Roman citizen who chose to relocate to Gaul. Tiberius would take it further, and would ban these practices altogether. Whatever remained of the Celtic religious practices had to go underground. Other than some myths and art forms that would reappear around the 8th century, much of the Celtic culture in this part of the world was gone forever. Now, we have not yet covered the Roman conquest of Britain. But we're going to be there soon, and we're not going to have time for another supplemental, so let's cover Britain right now. Again, there were various tribal peoples living in Britain at the time of the Roman invasion, so we need to be cautious about painting with too broad a brush. Suffice it to say that the Roman approach to Britain was the same as Gaul, and the native response was as equally diverse. Certainly, there were more notable native revolts in Britain, and we will cover the massive revolt led by the warrior Queen Boudicca, in due time. Right down to the end of the Principate, there remained pockets of resistance to urban culture in both Britain and Gaul. Those who chose not to associate with Rome generally did not take up armed resistance. Rather, they just went away. Perhaps to a forest, perhaps to a hilltop community. And these remained for some time. Of course, one major exception to this trend were the various veteran settlements various emperors would establish, which tended to dramatically increase stability. Generally, Gaul exported raw materials and slaves to Rome, which did help its local economy. However, and I, and I want to stress this, a huge boon to the economies. Of both provincial areas was the fact that they were both military provinces. We're going to talk about this a couple of times in this episode and in other episodes, so pay attention. Now both provinces remained under the control of the emperors because both had legions assigned to them, lots of legions, and those men needed camps, they needed supplies, they needed food, and it had to be local. These men also had a steady salary so they had money to spend, and they were certainly not going to go on a holiday to Rome to spend it. So in the areas where we find large concentrations of troops, Hadrian's Wall for example, it should be no surprise we find thriving economies. Yet much of the countryside for both regions would have appeared the same way to many travelers throughout our stories. Governors generally did not interfere with the everyday lives of their people, Most farmsteads were unaffected by the political upheavals of the various years. As usual, these farmers just looked to the skies and to their harvests to determine their lives. Just as many people still do today. The Rhineland, which at this point is the region along the Rhine on the German side, was the site of the most intermittent, intensive fighting during the reign of the Julio-Claudians. The region that I'm talking about is roughly between the Rhine and the Elbe rivers. It was treated as a single military and settlement zone until the Flavian empires annexed to the zone between 73 and 98 A.D., We do not know a lot about this region apart from military sources. However, I do think it's important to note that there was substantial evidence of significant trade throughout the region during this time period. So it wasn't just swords and blood being traded back and forth between the Romans and the locals. The Alps were treated as part of the same region. After the conquest of the area around 15 BC, as long as those people ceased their banditry, the Romans required almost nothing of them and, frankly, there is very little evidence of any substantial change to the area. Down from the Alps we move and proceed in our tour into the Balkans and the lands surrounding the Danube. The Danube was the other major military front in the Roman Empire at this time. Thus, there were many similarities between the Danube and Rhine regions. The Balkans themselves were divided by a mountain range that runs north to south through Bosnia, Montenegro, and Albania. The Romans here never followed a pattern of forced urban development, like in Gaul or the Iberian Peninsula. The Balkans were conquered for their strategic value, not for their economic value. The region was home to military bases and settlements of veterans to encourage stability. But that was about the extent of what the Romans thought the region was good for. Until the 2nd century AD, that is. Once we hit around AD 100, Thracians, Illyrians, and Celts from this region would make up a large portion of the Roman army, particularly in that region. These soldiers gradually spread the use of Latin, and as these men retired, they formed actual communities throughout the region, and the agricultural production of the lands on the lower Danube increased as a result to feed the new settlements. Yet, the region remained always far less tamed than the Iberian Peninsula, for example. From the Balkans, we travel south to Greece and the islands of the Aegean. By the middle of the first century BC, all the inhabitants of the Aegean were well accustomed to Roman hegemony. So all this was nothing new by the time Augustus came around, a fact we pointed out several times during the last few episodes. In fact, little changed in Greece as Rome transitioned from republic to principate. No major military forces were garrisoned in this region, nor do we hear about any serious insurrections. Peace, it seems, was taken for granted, though perhaps this was also due to the huge military force on the Danube just several days' march away. Rome actually brought something of an economic recession to Greece, which started back with Pompey's conquests in the early to middle 1st century BC. When Pompey consolidated much of the eastern Mediterranean into one economic unit, Greece suddenly found itself unable to compete, as olive oil and wine were available more cheaply as imports than those same goods produced locally. So Roman political stability actually tore the bottom out from the Greek economy, or at least that's one way of looking at it. The Greeks, nonetheless, remained fiercely aware of their cultural history. Ask any Athenian who it was that saved Western civilization, and they would remind you it was Athens who defeated Darius. Of course, they would conveniently forget about Alexander the Great's conquests, or the fact that it was Rome, not Athens, that now protected the East from Parthia, but hey, those are just details, right? Many emperors, as we shall shortly see, were infatuated with Greek culture, so to an extent, perhaps, Greece was right to trade on its history. It was, after all, just about the only thing it had left. We are now nearing the end of our tour. The geography of modern-day Turkey permitted the persistence of local cultures even during Roman times. It's there we now head. The hills on the coast gradually slope away into an arid plateau, which eventually gives way in turn to the Taurus Mountains to the east. Essentially this region had been under Roman control since early in the 2nd century BC, but in a variety of different ways. Early on, Rome controlled the region through client rulers, but after the Battle of Actium, Augustus slowly began the process of consolidating this territory into Roman provinces. This was gradual and rather piecemeal, but it certainly was a pattern of behavior which was never reversed. Roman state interest in the region was again primary militarily. A main military road ran across the Anatolian Peninsula to Byzantium, Rome needed communications from their border with Parthia and the Armenian buffer state. Thus, the importance of maintaining these lines. Economic activity here encouraged by Rome is really quite hard to document. Certainly, there were many lavish estates owned by local elites, and Rome exported a large quantity of high-quality marble back to the capital city. But beyond that, there is little we can be certain of. Olives and corn were produced in the fertile western regions, but the plateau itself is a rough place and suffers from severe winters, so production was always and remains always low. And, well, let's face it, Rome was never that interested in encouraging economic development here anyway. Now we have to ride south, through the Sicilian gates, into the northern Levant. The citizens of the Levant were rather hard to characterize, as summarized here by the historian Josephus. So they, the Jews, went to Seleucia, the most notable city of the region which Seleucus Nicator had founded, whose inhabitants consisted of many Macedonians, a majority of Greeks and not a few Syrians, holding civic rights. At Seleucia, life is marked by general strife and discord between the Greek and the Syrians, in which the Greeks now have the upper hand. Now, when the Jews came to live in the city, there was continued strife, and the Syrians got the upper hand by coming to terms with the Jews, who were adventurous and joined the ranks for the battle with gusto. End quote. Josephus. Certainly, the Syrian heartland had a strong Hellenistic culture. When Rome showed up, but much of it was urban, and what Josephus is talking about there is simply the reality that what we're entering into right now are the old Hellenistic kingdoms, and these are by far and away the the most cosmopolitan regions of the Roman Empire. But the regions, as we'll talk about when we get to Egypt, that even though they're economically important, because to a large extent in the future they're going to be away from our major military theaters, they don't have as much importance as we move forward, at least importance from the perspective of the emperor at the time. They are vital regions, and I'll explain why as we go, but what we need to understand is that there is a lot of diversity in this area. On the steppe, there remained wild tribes. On the coast of Lebanon, there remained Phoenician cities. On the desert fringes, there were Arabs, and throughout the region, there were Jews. Now, so long as all remained peaceful, again, Rome did little to change the status quo, But the most obvious change throughout the imperial period we're talking about now was the gradual shift of the Roman military machine to the east to combat and stand against Parthia. The Romans always perceived Parthia as their major threat. And, you know, we'll continue to see that. Now, Armenia, as you recall, was established as a sort of protectorate, sometimes by Rome, sometimes by Parthia. In other words, a buffer state between these two major world powers. The military had a huge impact on this entire region, but a very different one than along the Danube. This was not a particularly excellent recruiting area for the legions. No, what the legions brought here was money and economic resurgence. For example, Antioch had been in decline during the last years of Seleucid rule. Now it gained a massive boost through its Roman military role, which was very substantial. Palmyra, by another example, a city we will discuss much more in the future, though it is sadly being torn asunder, as I speak, by war, did experience a similar resurgence, and we have to assume that these are two examples of a larger pattern of economic renaissance brought about by the reality that Rome continued to flood the area with troops. Now, for now, we're going to skip over the southern Levant and Judea, Because it's going to come into play so much under the Flavian dynasty that I want to get into in the next couple of episodes that I want to make sure that we're doing it full justice and we're going to talk about it then. So for now, let's move on to Egypt. Egypt, an ancient and stable civilization already the pyramids had stood for thousands of years by the time Augustus annexed the territory after Actium. You know, interestingly, and I did find this very interesting, despite being a major cereal producer for the region, by which I mean grain, Egypt would actually decline in status under the Romans, only to recover in a huge way, When we get to the Byzantine Empire. Now Augustus continued his if it ain't broke don't fix it strategy in Egypt. He retained the complex Ptolemaic bureaucracy. He made a few changes but he used the old terminology so even those changes were hardly noticed. Only those in Alexandria really felt the change when Rome took over. Mostly this was because Alexandria was not keen on playing second fiddle to anyone, let alone a sprawling, muddy metropolis somewhere out west. Its city council was rendered obsolete. Instead, they got a prefect and, oh, did I forget to mention, Augustus despised Egypt personally. Yeah, he really never could forgive Cleopatra, could he? Anyway, the political downgrading of the city essentially led to a persistent anti-Roman sentiment, though I should mention that there were few, if any, major revolts. Yet, by and large, life in Egypt continued much as it had for thousands of years, and would continue in the same vein long after the Romans were gone. So that leaves North Africa. Africa was dictated by geography. There were settlements in cities along the fertile western coastal plain and large indigenous populations to the south, particularly in the semi-desert and desert regions. Clearly, in Africa, the biggest Roman impact was extensive urbanization. In part, this was a deliberate policy followed by both Julius Caesar and Augustus, who shipped thousands of... Of immigrants to the region and founded numerous cities. Yet, Augustus also granted municipal powers to many indigenous communities, so it was not a purely exothermic immigrant policy. The goal seems to have been to settle the region, and in that, the early emperors were quite successful. The wealth of these communities was derived from the large, Markets for grain and olive oil back in Rome, which this very fertile region could more than supply. Interestingly, to meet the grain dole and other needs, much of the land in modern-day Tunisia remained under the direct control of the emperors. Clearly, the productivity of this area was not wasted on them. Africa was a peaceful place, and really remained so until the Vandals arrived. But we're not going to get to that for some time. So there you have it. The Roman Empire circa 14 AD plus Britain. Now that we know what the Empire looked like and who lived where, we can continue to explore Western civilization under the Julio-Claudian emperors. I expect to cover these in about two or three episodes. In the coming episodes, you will notice more emphasis on primary source quotations because there are just way too many good stories for me to pass up. I'm going to stick to my original plan of keeping a tight narrative and covering the major events for each emperor without going into massive detail. You have the history of Rome by Mike Duncan for that. However, there are some amazing stories here. And so my plan is to continue to give an overview while slowing down from time to time to relate an event or series of events in great detail if I determine it's of greatest importance or just a fantastic story. I expect to have the next episode out in about two weeks, and these are going to be on the longer side, again, because we're going to be covering much, much larger periods of history and many more years than we have during the transition from the republic to the principate though you know as i promised i'm going to keep the speed up i'm also working on a website which should be out over the next several months that i will be posing lesson plans and other teaching material about these various topics in history so stay tuned for this after all this entire podcast is intended as i am a teacher to be used as a teaching tool so, if you have ideas, if you have lesson plans once I get the website up and running, please feel free to email those to me at westerncivpodcast at gmail.com. That's westerncivpodcast at gmail.com. I will go into greater detail in some of other episodes just at the end of the episode so that we're not detracting from anything, so that everybody has a better sense of exactly what I am trying to accomplish with this And why I started out on this road in the first place some almost 18 months ago at this point. So until I talk to you next time, we're coming into the holidays, so I'll have a happy Thanksgiving.